This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford, and I'm so glad you're here for the 113th episode of Self Work. That really seems unbelievable to me. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been practicing in Fayetteville, Arkansas for over 25 years, 26 to be exact, and started podcasting a couple of years ago in order to reach out to those who might already be interested in therapy or have been diagnosed with a mental illness and be working with a therapist, but also to those who might have just been diagnosed with anxiety or depression or an eating disorder or bipolar disorder or whatever, or it's just people with relationship problems that are looking for help. But there's a third group that really interests me a lot, and those are the people who might say they would never darken the door of a therapist. I wanted to extend the walls of my practice to them so that you would know what a therapist sounds like, what might a therapist say, what might a therapist have to offer. So I'm glad you're here, whatever group you happen to belong to. Today's focus was actually a suggestion from a listener, so I'm so delighted to be talking about imposter syndrome today, the fear that you aren't what you appear to be, that you haven't truly earned your place, that any day now someone is going to discover that you're a phony or a fraud. I remember when I got into graduate school, after a couple of months, I said to myself, well, you know, if I got in, anybody could get in. That's imposter syndrome, okay? By the way, I changed my mind after I was writing my dissertation, which was pretty hard. But in today's podcast, we're going to be featuring the research of a woman named Dr. Valerie Young, but also thoughts from an article by Melody Wilding. But then I'll add my own thoughts, and I'll have Dr. Valerie Young's research and Ms. Wilding's article in the show notes. It's interesting that with perfectly hidden depression, Imposter syndrome could easily be a part of that dynamic, but not always. It's something to think about. Our listener email is from a young 19-year-old woman whose mother had significant mental illness as someone with borderline personality disorder, and she's afraid that she's just like her. So we'll be talking about not only borderline personality disorder, but how to know if you somehow learned those traits yourself and are repeating them. So let's sit back and relax and talk about imposter syndrome. I remember the first time anyone told me their fears of feeling like an imposter. I'd begun a psychology internship at Terrell State Psychiatric Hospital outside of Dallas, and my new male supervisor said it. He only added to my nervousness by doing that, by the way. He said, I think every day someone's going to come in here and tell me that my diploma is no good. They gave it to me by mistake. He laughed, but he actually didn't laugh very convincingly. What I know now is that's called imposter syndrome, when high-achieving people not only doubt their competence, but believe at any moment alarms and whistles are going to sound and the imposter police are going to come running out, close your laptop, and escort you out of the building. They may constantly self-denigrate saying things either out loud or to themselves, something like, you know, it's only my opinion, but or it's a fluke that I was assigned this project, and I've already told you about mine. 
when I got into graduate school. If I could get in, it mustn't be that hard. Many have written that women are more likely to struggle with this. Dr. Valerie Young, who's written a book on the topic, states, The thing about imposters is that they have unsustainably high standards for everything they do. The thinking here is, if I don't know everything, then I know nothing. If it's not absolutely perfect, it's woefully deficient. If I'm not operating at the top of my game 24-7, then I'm incompetent. And that's where you can certainly hear its link with perfectly hidden depression, right? Her website, which again, I will have the link to that on my show notes, quotes everyone from Maya Angelou to Kate Winslet, saying that they have struggled with just such thinking. Through years of research, Dr. Young has categorized the imposter syndrome into subgroups, the perfectionist, the superwoman or man, the natural genius, the soloist, and the expert. Her book is called The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from the Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. Quite a long title. She describes these internal rules that people who struggle with confidence attempt to follow. I'd never heard of these categories, so I thought they'd be interesting to talk about today, briefly. The first one is the perfectionist, setting incredibly high goals and never letting go of that perfectionistic yardstick. If this applies to you, you might have some of these traits. And again, this is from Melody, Melody Wilding's article. Do you have great difficulty delegating? When you miss the insanely high mark on something, do you accuse yourself of not being cut out for your job and ruminate on it for days? Then there's the superwoman or superman. Basically, this is the workaholic. Everything you do is about accomplishment. You see others as highly competent and feel as if you've always got to push harder, stay at work longer. You're constantly comparing yourself to other people. You don't think you've earned the right to be where you are, so you have to keep proving it. It's hard for you to play. You struggle to find enjoyment in things that aren't about proving your worth. I had a a man many years ago now as a patient who had made millions, and he really was wanting to stop and do a lot of volunteering to do things that he only had dreamed about doing. But he looked at me and said, my father told me I'd never amount to anything. And so I've got to prove him wrong. And I looked at him and said, how many millions do you have to make to do just that? So he definitely would fit into the Superman kind of imposter syndrome because he was telling himself what his father had told him. Then Dr. Young's third category is the natural genius. She says people with this competence type believe they need to be a natural genius. As such, they judge their competence based on their ease or their speed as opposed to their efforts. If they take a long time to master something, they feel a lot of shame. These types of imposters set their internal bar impossibly high, just like perfectionists. But the natural genius types don't just judge themselves based on really ridiculous expectations. They judge themselves based on if they get things right on their first try. I've had people, for instance, not want to try hypnosis or EMDR in therapy because they're afraid they won't do it right. Some of Miss Wilding's questions are, are you used to excelling without much effort? Do you have a track record of getting straight A's or gold stars in everything you do? Were you the smart one in your family? Do you dislike the idea of having a mentor because you can handle things on your own? Do you not challenge yourself because it's uncomfortable for you to do so because you're afraid you won't be fantastic at it? These people can be really paralyzed. 
Dr. Young's fourth category is the soloist. Sufferers who feel as though asking for help reveals that they're phonies. They want to be independent, and they refuse assistance. How you know? You believe you don't need anyone's help. Does that sound like you? Do you not talk about your needs as a person? Then the fifth category that Dr. Young says, and Ms. Wilding offers us questions for, is the expert. Experts measure their competence based on what and how much they know or do. They believe they'll never know enough, and they fear being exposed as inexperienced or unknowledgeable. For example, if you were applying for a job, would you have to meet every requirement? Or you'd say, oh, I could never do that. I'm not expert enough. Are you constantly seeking out trainings because you think you need to improve your skills to succeed? Do you shudder when someone calls you an expert? I remember, in fact, when I started blogging, well, actually, it was several months before I started blogging, this woman who was helping me, Jeanette Baeza Collins, who's an entrepreneurial supporter, said, Margaret, how long do you think you have to have done something to be considered an expert? And I said, oh, I don't know, 20 years? She said, five years. Five years. I was like, oh, my gosh. And I looked at her and I said, but I haven't written a book or been on any talk shows. <laughs> In fact, I wasn't real sure what a link was until I started blogging. So I was blown away. Now, there's a good deal of controversy about what to do about imposter syndrome. Writers like Brene Brown talk clearly about vulnerability being a weakness. Sheryl Sandberg, in her book Lean In, says you have to be there for one another, create a circle of peers for support, and focus on building competence in each other, but not perfectionism. Anytime you risk, you have to kind of swallow hard and realize you're opening yourself up to criticism. I know that when I began blogging, some of my posts just fell flat, and that was embarrassing. Some of these podcasts don't do as well as others. And I'll be scooting along, feeling okay, and then all of a sudden, I can hear this little gremlin inside my ear, you know, who are you to do this? Shut up and crawl back into the safety of your office. That's my imposter syndrome. If I'm not going along perfectly, then sometimes I can doubt I should be doing it at all. You know, if I spend a little energy attempting to connect the dots, I can usually see what triggered this insecurity. I'm not sleeping enough. I'm beating myself up with old memories. I have a patient that isn't progressing, or maybe my readership is down. And so, if you suffer from imposter syndrome, here are 10 things that can help. 10 is a lot, but I'm hoping that they'll be helpful. We'll just talk briefly about them. First, you have to step away from your only source of validation being external. Put post-it notes or whatever works for you with affirmations of your worth where you can see them. Know what you like about yourself that has nothing to do with accomplishment. I'm honest. I'm a good friend. What are the things that you can internally validate yourself about? Number two is to find a mentor who can guide you. Just having a mentor inherently puts you in a place of knowing and accepting there's still so much to learn. One of my best friends and I serve as supervisors for one another when we run up against cases that we don't understand or that we realize we're not helping the patient make progress. When I ask her for her help, I'm immediately saying, I know that I don't have all the answers. 
Number three is to develop a hobby or an interest where you can accept not doing it well, that it's about the process, not about succeeding. I sat down over the holidays and my son had begun to paint and I never have painted. And I thought, you know, I'm going to try. And I was pretty lousy, but it was fun trying. So really risk. Pick up something that you want to learn and realize you're not going to do it well at the very beginning. The fourth is to realize that everyone has their insecurities. Just because someone doesn't look as if they do is not right and is not fair. If there's been a gift of being a therapist, this is one of the big ones. Because some of the most put-together people walk in my office, and then they tell me their backstory. We all have vulnerabilities. Number five is to list your strengths and your vulnerabilities. Realize that both of them are going to show. You're not always going to be at your best. None of us can be. And that's okay. Number six is to set out to do something imperfectly. Now, this can be fun. Sometimes I've said to people who are perfectionists, I want you to intentionally do something mediocre. And they look at me like I'm crazy. I said, no, fix a mediocre meal. Do something half-ass, as we would say. Just do something and don't try to make it perfect. And they say, but it makes me so anxious to do that. I said, yes, that's the anxiety that you need to learn how to manage. Now, number seven sounds like the exact opposite of that. But allow yourself to claim your expertise. What do you really do well? Again, this is somewhat like listing your strengths, but even get comfortable with the idea of being expert at something. I don't care if it's sewing on a button or playing soccer or teaching reading. I don't know what it could be, but you're an expert at something. Number eight is to look for your past triggers. Consider where or how you learned you weren't going to make it if you weren't the best in your field. And you had to be the best to be valued. Where did you learn that? And are you still pounding your own head and heart with that same message when really that message belongs in the past? You may need to grieve it, but it belongs in the past. Number nine is to put work in perspective. What do you want to be remembered for? There's a country song, Live Like You're Dying. And although we can't do that, What would you want to be remembered for? How much money you made, what you were expert in, or whether you loved well. So try to put work in perspective. Number 10 is to go on and openly reveal your own vulnerabilities. Say in a meeting, you know, I'm not quite sure what to do here, or I really appreciate your opinion. I'm not clear on this. Know that if you verbalize your own vulnerabilities, people will see you as yourself, but it does not discount your strength. You don't have to let feeling like an imposter stop you. Just realize when you're doing it, kind of laugh at yourself, say, I'm not the only one, but don't listen to those invasive whispers. They're not helpful to you. They want to control your life, but you can learn how to manage them. Our listener email today is from someone who was parented by 
a mom with borderline personality disorder. So here's her question. Hi, Dr. Rutherford. I've been listening to your podcast and have especially been touched by the ones about loving somebody with borderline personality disorder. I'm a 21-year-old female and have a mother who suffers from borderline. I've recently tried separating my self-worth from her approval and what she says to me, but it's still difficult to not feel down about myself every time that she disapproves of something I do. Nothing I ever do feels good enough, and my self-esteem is very shaky in response to that. I've also noticed some of her traits showing up in my personality as I get older, and it's terrifying to me. My worst fear has been to turn into her and end up treating my own family the same way. That fear has affected me so much that I'm afraid to have children of my own and have recently decided that I no longer want children out of fear of accidentally making them feel the way I have felt my entire life. I mentioned this casually to my dad, and my mom overheard me. She began to scold me and make me feel guilty by saying that I had a responsibility to give her grandchildren. It didn't matter to her if that was what I wanted for my own life, because that's what she expects of me. Then here came a string of insults that were very hard to ignore. How can I tell if I'm on the path to developing borderline traits? I'm not allowed to see a therapist. My parents don't believe in mental illnesses or mental health issues, and I'm still financially dependent on them at the moment. Also, if you have any suggestions on how I can avoid developing the disorder myself or any tips to help me begin to heal, I would really appreciate it. Yeah, this last situation is something that I hear a lot about when you're financially dependent still on parents and you know something's wrong or you see yourself going down some sort of rabbit hole and they won't support you or help you. That's a really tough position to be in. So I say, First, of course, you're in a tough position still being dependent on your parents. And it sounds as if your mom makes your emotions about her and even your life. So there's little to no chance of her thinking of you as separate from her. I'm so sorry. So you're going to need to learn more about how to cope on your own. Please recognize that if you're asking yourself the question, am I developing borderline symptoms, then you're likely not borderline. That very thought pattern where you're analyzing your own behavior and trying to be objective or you're beginning to acknowledge and try to deal with how you impact other people, those things aren't something that most people who struggle with borderline would do. They have little understanding or empathy about that very impact on others. I would wonder if you're simply becoming angry and that scares you. Since therapy isn't an option, it sounds as if you'll need to seek information about what to do with anger on your own. That fear of turning into my mother can cause you to greatly overthink things. Your mom has been highly critical of you, and you can become highly critical of yourself. I'd recommend reading or seeking information as much as you can on borderline personality disorder. Books like Stop Walking on Eggshells or Understanding the Borderline Mother are great references, and I'll have links to those in the show notes. The latter is expensive, but I think well worth it. My last point, you're 21, you've got a lot of life to live, and you've had a very rocky start, and your dad may or not be a source of comfort, but hang in there and take good care. If you're in a similar situation where you have had a parent or have a parent with mental illness, and they are not taking responsibility for it, they've never sought treatment themselves, then you've had a very rough start, or you're still dealing with that later in life. 
the best thing you can do is to try to read books. And if you're older and self-supportive, to get yourself in therapy so that you can learn how to develop strong boundaries with these kinds of family members. It can take a while, but it is doable. Thank you so much for being part of this episode of Self Work by being a listener. There are lots of ways to reach out to me. I do have a website, drmargaretrutherford.com, and you can subscribe there and get a weekly newsletter with both this weekly podcast and a blog post. Nothing else, I promise. Please leave a rating or a review wherever you listen. Those are very helpful to me as I still see a bunch of patients every week. So it's very motivating when I see another rating or especially a written review on iTunes. That motivates me a lot, and I'm very grateful to those of you who have done so. Email me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. It is confidential. If you want to ask me a question that you don't want read on air, please feel free to tell me that, and I won't do that. And the last way to get in touch with me, which is the newest way, is I have a Facebook group. It's Facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. It is a closed group of right now a little over 450 members. And so we share with each other about our lives since it is closed It could be much more private, and there's just some questions to answer in order to get into the group. And there's some rules to follow, but they're easy, mostly about kindness and compassion. I'd look forward to hearing from you there, because I come and go fairly regularly with comments, stories, links, journal prompts, those kinds of things. It's a way for us to grow in wisdom together. So thank you again for listening. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.